It's so good to be together worshiping our Lord this morning. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, join me in your Bibles in John chapter 14. We'll continue to see what we see here. If you've been with us, you know we have been already now for some time hearing our Lord work to comfort and to equip his disciples. He's doing this in light of the fact that he is about to leave them. He's going to leave them as he goes to the cross and as he goes to the tomb. And he has been preparing them for the fact of his death. But we've already seen his words are looking beyond just the departure of his death. They're looking beyond his resurrection. They're looking to his ascension. He's comforting and equipping his disciples in view of the fact that they're going to spend the rest of their lives with him separated from them bodily. And so there's much for them to hear and uh, much that they need to receive in terms of this equipping. Uh, last week we heard our Lord comfort them in this way with promises of final provision. So he brought their eyes past all of what they were about to face in their lives and he comforted them and encouraged them by pointing them to their heavenly destination. That was last week. Uh, next week, he's going to begin to get much more specific about not final provision, but about future provision, ways that, that the Father is going to equip them while he is away from them bodily. In between those things, la last week and next week, uh, we find verses 7 to 11. This will be our uh, focus this morning. This passage is encouragement to them. It's building up of its own type. You could say not details about how God will provide for them after Jesus is gone, but instead really more detail for them about how God has provided for them in Him. All of what we're going to see stems from verse 7. The rest Verses 8 to 11 is really the, the results of what he says in verse 7, the fallout from the declaration that we'll hear in verse 7. And that declaration is this. He's going to announce to them in what we see this morning that by being intimately near to him, they have in fact been intimately near to the Father himself. In fact, Jesus is going to utter words here in verse 7 that a Jewish mind lacks any category for whatsoever. He's going to announce to them that in him they have seen God. The way that this progresses in what is said here in this back and forth is, seems to be given to us in a pretty deliberate way, even in some ways mechanically, which can be helpful for us in our outline uh, because it helps us to see how all of this fits together. So what we're going to find here is this, there's the declaration itself in verse 7, followed by explanation of it, verses 9 and 10 especially, and then an exhortation to it in verse 11. So we'll just walk through it that way this morning together. Declaration, explanation, exhortation, and before we end, we'll add to that application. Three ways in particular that, that we uh, are further equipped in our thinking and living because of what we see uh, in this passage. 
So let's read together the text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're looking this morning at verses 7 to 11. I'll begin reading in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I hope that you can hear as we read that how... All of this comes as a result of the declaration that's made in verse 7. We really will spend a good amount of time just in verse 7 here this morning. Uh, and some of what we need to do is to address some difficulties. That We are faced with a difficulty there coming into this because the wording of this verse gives us a challenge. I just read it there in the ESV, and maybe you could hear it. Reading it the way that it's worded there suggests something directly, doesn't it? It suggests that Jesus' point is to them that they haven't known him. Can you hear that in the way that that's worded? If you had known me, you would have known my father also. That's the way we phrase something in English when we're making the point that that thing is not the case, right? If you had, then you would have. But I want to suggest to you this morning that is not necessarily Jesus' point here. And in fact, I would go so far as to say I do not believe that that is his point. I don't mean that there isn't something to critique about their current knowledge of him. There clearly is. He's going to say to Philip in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? So there's something there. Their knowledge of their Lord is incomplete. There's no doubt about that. And the things that they do know about him, they do not fully understand. All of that is true. But his point in verse 7 is not to question their knowledge of him. They know him. They need to know him more. They are going to know him more. And none of that is the point. The point is to tell them what knowledge of him is. And it fits so well on what he has just said before this. I think verse 7 is translated very well by the Christian Standard Bible. Listen to how the CSB translates this. In that translation, they put his words this way. If you know me, you will also know my Father. Just hear how well that fits. Now, that, by the way, not only fits grammatically with what is said, that fits better, as a matter of fact. But notice how well it fits with what was just said leading up to this. What was the back and forth we saw last week? You know the way to where I am going. 
How can we know the way? I am the way, which means you know me because you know the way to where I'm going. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then immediately this, if you know me, you will know my Father also. In that way, you can hear that it's almost a conclusion statement to what he said right before all of this. If you're with me, I will take you to him. If you know me, you will know him. And incidentally, that verb know there at the end is a shift to the future tense. That's right. He says, if you know me, if you have known me, you will know my father. We saw that last week. That's not new. It really goes with it. But then he adds verse 7b. Look at how that verse ends. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. What is true of them now in light of what Christ is revealing to them? He says, you do know him. Which, as we've said, is a reiteration of the point he made in verses 4 to 7. But the next part, the part about seeing, this is something big and this is something new. In terms of what he is articulating here, he says, you do know him and have seen him. Perfect tense. This is well translated. Completed action. You have seen him. And that statement is what launches the rest of what we have here this morning with Philip. Because Philip latches on to that idea. He says, wait a minute, Jesus. You're suggesting some way in which it is possible to see the Father? And you're furthermore suggesting that in some way we have seen the Father? William Barclay wrote quite a while ago now, he said, in reference to this statement, he said, it may well be that to the ancient world, this was the most staggering thing Jesus ever said. To the Greeks, God was characteristically the invisible. The Jew would count it as an article of faith that no man has seen God at any time. And Jesus says, not only will you know the Father through me, from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. This is the declaration of verse 7 that sparks verses 8 to 11. But it's most certainly a declaration that needs an explanation. And if we were unsure about that, Philip steps in here to make it quite clear. Can you hear his excitement as this notion is introduced that they might actually see God? You hear the excitement in verse 8? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He misses the part where Jesus says that they have seen him. What registers is the concept itself of seeing him. And so, secondly, this morning, then, we begin to hear from our Lord an explanation of this thing that he's declared. This starts in verse 9. And we find right away that... As mysterious as this is going to be, and can you tell we're entering into things this morning that will be mysterious. They will remain mysterious after we're finished. If I say something in a way that when we're finished, this is not mysterious any longer, you can be very concerned that I've made a grave error for us. 
But as mysterious as it's going to be, one of the things that we see right away is that this is clearly not the first time Jesus has taught them about this. This is something that they should have had in mind by now, a category. It's not to say that he expected them to fully understand this, but it's a category that he has introduced to them. He's taught them this. You can hear that in his reply to Philip. He asks him in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? He's told them this before, this, some of these details he's about to go into about his relationship to the Father. These are indeed things that he has been teaching them before this. But notice, though, notice what it is that Jesus objects to about Philip's request. He asks Jesus to show them the Father. And this is his reply in verse 9. He says to him, how can you say that to me, Philip? How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Don't, do you still not know me, Philip? So he's responding to Philip's request to be sure. But we need to notice that all of it is serving as explanation of the revelation that he gave in verse 7, that they have seen the Father. The reply that he gives in verse 9 is the first of two components to his explanation here. So let's think about verse 9 some more. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Can you tell? This is a statement of some sort of identity between the Son and the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's a strong statement of identification between the two. But the question is, what kind of identification is this? Is he saying that he is the Father? That's one way someone could say something like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I am the Father. But that doesn't jive with Jesus' message throughout the Gospel of John, does it? It also, though, doesn't jive with what he is saying here. Because you notice down in verse 12, Jesus is going to the Father, isn't he? He's not making any claim in this conversation of actually being the Father. The Father is another person that he is going to go to. So no, he's not the Father. That's not the identification Jesus is describing. He's long told those who will listen that he has been sent to them by the Father. He says whatever the Father tells him to say. He's not the Father. But then in what sense does he identify with the Father like this, where he could say this thing? And we, we begin to gather as we're in passages like this. It's statements like these that Jesus is using to reveal to us some of the mysteries of the Trinity. We talked about this in the very first sermon in this study of John's Gospel quite a while ago now when we read in John 1.1 that this word was with God and was God. You remember the wrestlings there. We said that there's an identification here that's be, that we're being told about of the essence of father and son, and yet a distinction of their persons. So we're seeing a, an articulation of God as triune, God as one in essence, three in person. 
Now, in this first explanation that Jesus is giving here, pointing out this identity, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus is calling us to something here. He, he is not exhorting us, I think, to our great relief, if you're like me. He is not exhorting us to understand the shared essence of Father and Son in some satisfactory way intellectually. It's not comprehensive understanding that he's calling us to here, but he is calling us to recognize the truth of John 1.1. He's calling us to recognize the oneness that he shares with the Father. He's calling us to do what he'll say in verse 11. He's calling us to believe him when he says this about himself, to believe him that there is this union between him and the Father. Believe the Lord Jesus that in seeing him, we are seeing the Father. And that that is the case because everything that God is, the Father is. And everything that God is, the Son is. And yet the, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. But in this way then, because of their absolute oneness of essence, it is true that if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. He's giving us explanation here of how that statement can be. Now, he continues to explain then in verse 10, but he does it now using some different language. Look at verse 10. He asks the question, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So you hear these descriptions. The Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son. And then again, the Father dwells in the Son. This is further explanation as well. What does this mean? The Son is in the Father. It's passages like this that the church has grabbed hold of in searching for the language that we would use to speak about our God to faithfully speak about him as he has revealed himself. And so, for example, doctrine arises out of statements like these. Doctrine is not, it must never be, man's creative attempts to come up with how he would like to speak about God. Doctrine must be the result of a faithful submission to the revelation of God's word. And that happens in places like this, on the matter of, of the being of God. These are the kinds of statements that God's people come to affirm and to teach as a result of the wording that Jesus has given to us. Now let's think about this one, in this case, about the Trinity and about the relations between the persons of the triune God. Little thing, big thing. Shallow thing, deep thing. What do you think? Do you think that if we put a name to this, Doctrine, it's going to have a little name or a big name. What would be your guess? Well, and in, in fact, what we find here in verse 10, as we, as we declare this to be true, as we articulate it, we find it actually has more than one name that's often used. Some of them drawn right out of ancient Greek and Latin, maybe just to convey that we're talking about something very complicated, something very deep. I don't know if that's the reason but it seems that way to me sometimes. I'll name three of these names to you. We'll go in order from scariest to least scary, as it seemed to me. 
what we find here in verse 10 is described with words like perichoresis, words like coherence, words like mutual indwelling, the doctrine of the mutual indwelling of the persons of God. Do you like mutual indwelling better than perichoresis? This is a dynamic within the, the being of God, within the persons of the Godhead, that J.C. Ryle and others simply call a mystical union between Christ and the Father. There exists between the Father and the Son a mystical union. That's some of the language that you'll hear. Others will spell out the ways that the Bible's descriptions have given us our vocabulary when it comes to describing God. And as I've said, I think it's very helpful for us to think about it like that, that what we're doing and what we have to do is we have to let God's Word tell us how to think about God and how to talk about Him then. It's a helpful way to think even about what doctrine is. In many ways, it is guardrails for us so that we, we, we are careful to think and speak His thoughts and His words after Him and not to wander in human creativity. There's a man named Donald McLeod wrote a helpful book back in the late 90s about Trinitarian relations, about the person of Christ, um, and that book has been very useful to others since then. He describes there what the church confesses. So you can look at verse 10 here and these statements that Jesus has just given. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Mutual indwelling. He'll use the word perichoresis. So now you're armed. You know what that is talking about. Uh, but he, he said this. He's, he's describing what the church has historically confessed because of places like this. He says, taken temporally, perichoresis means that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit occupy and fill the same time or the same eternity. Each is unoriginated, endless, and eternal. Taken spatially, it means that each person and all the persons together occupy and fill the same space. Each is omnipresent while remaining unconfused with the others. Each one fills immensity. Beyond that, each contains the other. Each dwells in the other. Each penetrates the other. And each conditions the mode of the existence of the other. None, not even the Father, would be what he is without the others. This is his attempt to articulate what the church has confessed about the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Godhead. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not because I am the Father, but because the Father is in me. And because I am in him. And this is the case with us to such an extent that when you, when you hear me speak, you're not just hearing my words, but you're also witnessing his works as you hear my words. He says in verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Kind of an unexpected way to end that sentence. 
Now, we try to think about those things. I, the, the guardrails are very helpful for us, but we try, to, we try to wrestle. We try to come to an understanding, and it's not hard to sense why we would describe what Christ is telling us here as a mystical union. It's something that we're called upon here to believe about Christ. But it's not something that we're being called or expected to understand in a way that approaches anything like clarity. And there is a good reason for that. I mentioned a book from the late 90s just a few years ago. A man named Stephen Wellam published a, an extensive work about the person of Christ. And he said this. I thought this was very helpful. He said, the church has always admitted that attempting to explain the Trinity and specifically the unity of the intra-Trinitarian personal relations. He says, the church has always admitted that attempting to explain that is difficult. Since, in human experience, no analogy to it exists. That's always been helpful to me to, 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 to explain why something could be true that could be incomprehensible to me, to, to understand that we're, we're hearing about God something that is true about him that we have no other experience of in that way. And of course, generally speaking, I would think that we would expect that to be the case if we're trying to think about God. That it would be the case that if the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, who is in fact the explanation of the never-ending one and the many problems that philosophers have always wrestled over, the one and the many, what's ultimate, if that God chooses to reveal something of the reality of his being to us, I think we would expect it to be beyond us. What kind of a God would it be if he could reveal himself to us in these depths and we, his little creatures, could say, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'm tracking with you, God. So remember where we are this morning. We have seen in verse 7 Christ's declaration of this oneness with the Father to this extent. We've been listening to his words of explanation. That there is an identity between him and the Father that does not mean that he is the Father, but it is reflected in John 1.1. He is with God and he is God. We've seen that explanation. We've seen this explanation of the mutual, uh, the, the perichoretic nature of the persons, that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And what Jesus does then is he, he leads all of this, this amount of explanation, and he brings it to a particular exhortation to his disciples. The manner of, uh, of his exhortation here I think fits very well with what we've been saying about how mysterious this union is to us. Notice how he proceeds here. He gives them, you can almost say he gives them two options. Do you see the format of verse 11? It's a do this or else do that. He says in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, this believe me there is different than what he said at verse 1 of this chapter. Up there he was saying, believe in me, in the sense of put your trust upon me, depend on me. 
That's not the point that he's making here. He's not calling them to have a general posture of faith in him here in verse 11. He's actually telling them to believe a particular thing that he's saying. Believe me when I tell you that my relationship with the Father is as I have just told you it is. Take me at my word. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But it's as if there's a but after that then. But if you're struggling to do that here, then what you need to do is simply you need to see the works themselves and draw the right conclusion. He's told them this before as well. I believe it was back in chapter 10 that he brought this same wording up. You have clearly seen me do things that you know only God can do. I have told you that I am not the Father. Yet here I am doing things that only God can do. Draw a conclusion. The only explanation is that I am in a union with the Father that cannot be denied, but also that cannot be fathomed according to mere human understanding. And to me, that sounds like a pretty good description of our confession of the Trinity. Right there. None of us feels as if this is a simple and clear reality. And yet we also don't hesitate for a moment to confess our faith in the Trinity, in the triune God. And we do that fundamentally because we trust our Savior. And having heard what he has said and having seen what he has done, we follow the lead that he, by his Spirit, has led the church in throughout the ages, committing to the tri-unity of three persons who are yet one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, just know, it is interesting, he's, he's articulating here his relationship with the Father. Starting next week, he's going to be able to begin saying a number of things that are, help us understand his relationship to the Holy Spirit as well. So that's coming very quickly. But we find ourselves here this morning receiving Jesus' declaration of his relationship to the Father, receiving his explanation of that declaration, and hearing his exhortation to us here to believe that he is who he says he is in relation to the Father. And it's that exhortation that he gave to them, and you understand he's giving it to us this morning to take what he has told us and believe him and what he has revealed. This exhortation is, is, is an opportunity for us to grow in our faithfulness to him. And I would have us end our time this morning by noticing that what we've received here from our Lord is far from simply an intellectual clarification. In some ways it may be that. This is information he's giving us. And that's helpful. But what we have received in these words and what we've seen in how our Lord relates all of that to us here, I would suggest to you these are incredibly clarifying to us in a number of ways. Could I suggest three of these? One thing that we find here is that we are learning something about, you could put it this way, we are learning something about sight. We're all familiar with the saying, seeing is believing. You've heard that, I expect. As it turns out, that is not true at all. 
true belief in Jesus requires something more than we receive merely by our own eyes. Because believing in him requires us to believe him in the things that he has told us, which are things that we would not have otherwise known by our own perceptions. Now it is true enough, and he brings it up here, that there's a kind of faith that can stem from seeing. So he says to them, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is a true faith that is spoken of in John's gospel. It sees the works of God, and by God's grace, it draws the right conclusions by ascribing that work to God and giving him the glory for it. That's a belief in which sight was involved and played a role. But I hope you can see even in that, that that belief did not come out of mere physical sight, did it? And we know that because plenty of people saw the same things, the same works, and did not draw that same conclusion, did not respond in faith. It depended then in that case, not merely on eyes of flesh, but on being given eyes of faith. And probably the poster child for this kind of phenomenon is the Apostle Thomas, who will hear in John 20 say to the other disciples, until I see the risen Christ with my eyes, I will not believe. You remember that? And when Christ then reveals himself to Thomas, Thomas does believe. He indeed believes upon the Lord, having seen. But that's the place where Jesus says, John 20, 29, to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The blessedness that comes by belief in Jesus' words, his declarations, that is the blessedness that he is commending to them in verse 11. As he tells them, believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. My friends, this is the very significant point that Jesus makes with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that uh, accounting that Jesus gives? I would have you look at this with me. If you, would you turn to Luke 16 for just a moment? Let's be reminded of what, what point he makes there. It can help us, I think, to understand his point here in verse 11. Luke 16, I'll start reading in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. In this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, now listen to this, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Verse 29, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What is it that our trust in Christ depends on? It depends not on the eyes of the flesh, but the eyes of faith. And so as we hear our Lord say these things, and as we hear him call us to believe him when he speaks, we are hearing the only path to life that we have. We must trust him and walk forward in trust. This is the first application we can draw from what's said here this morning. Jesus is rightly understood only by revelation and by illumination. If I have come to know him, to know him as he really is, I have been a recipient of God's mercy. I've been blessed by God. So we learn something here about the reality of saving faith, about the sight of Jesus and what brings it. Another thing we learn here is we learn something about ourselves. Remember what we saw in verse 7. We saw that the disciples, and even as Christ describes it there, their true knowledge of Christ is a knowledge that needs to grow. For which of us in this room is that not the case? Believers in here who possess true knowledge of their Savior but that it's a knowledge that is in need of growing. We saw in verse 7 this knowledge on the part of the disciples and knowledge that will grow by the work of their Savior. And as they display an eagerness to hear from him and to believe him when they hear from him. My friends, this says something about us, about how we work. What this means about us is that our true knowledge of Christ is something that progressively is grown in us by God over our lives. Another way to say that is simply this. We are works in progress, aren't we? Even after someone has saving faith and has come to truly understand who Christ is and to have believed on him, there is still room for them to grow in their understanding of the one whom they have come to know. And that's true of every believer in this place. We came to know him by his work in our lives. We came to know him truly, savingly. But now through time, we've come to know him better. And we still don't know him as well as we will. And it seems to me if there's one word that that commends itself to in our lives then, it's the word patience. Patience with ourselves in that godly way, not patience with sin in an ungodly way, 
but patience with ourselves, patience with one another. It's not the same thing as being complacent and content with immaturity. That would be a problem on its own, wouldn't it? But it does seem to me, if that's the first place your mind goes in this, to hear that this could bring us good news of patience and to jump immediately to the concept of complacency with sin or immaturity, it may be that you're lacking the very category in your mind that Christ displayed in verse 7 when he told them, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Does their knowledge of their father need to grow? Yes. But do they truly know him nonetheless? Yes. And so we learn something about ourselves in this. We who came to know him in the past, through time, we should be coming to know him better. Even as we realize that we still don't know him as we will know him. It creates a, really a dual sense for us of patience on the one hand, but also confidence in us, eagerness to be at work, obeying the calls of Scripture, cooperating with the Spirit's work of, as Romans 12 describes it, transformation by the renewing of our minds. There's a patience with God's timing, and yet there's an eagerness, a confidence of expectation, because He is the one who is growing us to know Him better. Finally, we also learn something about God's ways in what Jesus has said here to his disciples. Isn't it interesting, in verse 7, how Christ makes a undeniably mysterious statement that then prompts their further questions? He's done that many times in this gospel. He does it yet again here. And it seems to me that that tells us something very significant and encouraging about the ways that God uses in our lives. It tells us that our Savior is not just at work answering our questions. He is at work prompting our questions in order that he might teach us. The Lord allows us to come face to face with situations that raise questions for us, that ultimately lead to our maturity, even if they also lead through difficulty at times. He raises for us issues that we have never faced before, that we've never had answers to before, that we've never had to answer before. And as he does that to us, what's he doing? He is growing us. Is there anyone here this morning who is dealing with questions that you've never dealt with before? Maybe having to think through something at a level deeper than you have needed to before. Do you understand that God is sovereign over that? He is sovereign over its timing, its occasion. Do you understand that your Father is growing you with the wrestlings themselves and with the timing of those wrestlings? And I'm convinced this morning that all of this adds up to a picture of our place in God's purposes that should give us confidence as his children. We have a lot to do in this life. And the path of faithfulness is often a difficult one. It's a path that we walk often very conscious of our own limitations, don't we? Very aware of our own ignorance and our own failures. 
But when we hear the combination here of Christ's call to trust him, Christ's confidence in the work of God in his disciples, Christ's active role in guiding his disciples, even by posing the questions that force them to struggle, when we see all of that together, it just reminds us that in the final analysis, we rely on him. And we rely on him not only in our justification, but also in our sanctification. Not just in the forgiving of our sin, but also in the preserving of our souls. We depend on him entirely. And at that moment, Paul's assuring words come to our mind when he wrote about his Lord, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And my friends, all of this is certain in his children. And it's certain because Jesus is who he said he is. This morning he has said again to them and to us that he is one with the Father. He is the revelation of the Father. The one who perfectly represents him in word and deed, such that if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. And with this, he both comforts and equips his disciples. Next week, as he begins to assure them in some other very specific ways, uh, with promises of new covenant equipping, he's going to be describing, as I said, his relationship not with the Father, but with the Holy Spirit. This is something we have to look forward to. And in all of this, though, here's what we find. Our triune God will find perfect representation through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which, think about it, the one through whose name you pray to your Father. Let's do that together now as we close. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have been at many points put in our place as we have come before your word. Certainly humbled as we get glimpses of your majesty, of your holiness, and we see our own sinfulness by contrast, but also in many other ways humbled, brought low, as we are given a little glimpse of your greatness com compared to that of your creation. We understand, Lord, that in both such humblings, what you are doing is you're loving us, you're being good to us, by putting us in our place so that we might have you in your proper place in our lives. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the face of your Son. We thank you for your promises that through him we will, we will stand in your presence all the days of our life, that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from your love in Christ. These are the things that, that we depend on entirely and that we rest our souls upon. God, thank you for your loving protection of us. Thank you for the ways that you use your word to equip us for the future, to equip us for difficulty, for times of confusion, suffering, 
pain, temptation to despair. Lord, help us all here to remember that if these things that Jesus has said are true about himself, there is no, there is no despair for those who are found in him. Because in him we have life. We have access to God. We are even brought through him by adoption into the very family. God, we thank you for those assurances this morning. I pray that you would use your word in the lives of your people to build up, to bolster, to protect, and to grow us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.